Once you are self-aware, you must make a change. Welcome to the Millionaire Woman Show, where we'll be discussing leadership, business, human potential, inspiring you to live rich from the inside out. Unlock your creativity, stretch out of your comfort zone, break through your barriers, take inspired action, and achieve epic results. Now here's your host, three-time best-selling author, speaker, and certified executive coach, Deborah Kozowski. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Millionaire Woman Show. I'm your host, and today I have an exceptional interview to share with you. I am talking with future of work strategist, Heather E. McGowan, helps leaders prepare their people and organizations for the post-pandemic world of work. The last few years have forever changed the way we work, who works, how we work, measure work, and what we do um, for work, and most importantly, why we work. McGowan is a sense maker, dot connector, a deep thinker, and a pattern matcher who sees things that others miss. Heather gives people courage and insight that illuminates their path forward. She's transforming mindsets and entire organizations around the globe with her message about how the next phase of work will focus on continuous learning rather than simply learning in order to work. Pulitzer Prize winning New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman frequently quotes Heather in his books and columns and describes her as an oasis when it comes to the insights of future of work. In 2020, Heather was recognized as one of the top female futurists in the world by Forbes. Heather's sessions help employees and leaders alike prepare for and adapt to jobs that do not yet exist. And I am delighted to have you here, Heather, enjoying the Millionaire Woman Show. We, we talk about life, leadership, and business principles, and no better reason to have you on the show today because you have a brand new book coming out and uh, exceptional background, which I would love for you to share with our audience today. Sure. Thanks so much for having me. So I, I stumbled into this work and, you know, Steve Jobs once said the dots are easier connected looking backwards and looking forwards. And that's certainly true for me. What What is, since, since we're talking on that dot connection, I, I really love that analogy. In hindsight, how, how did you now, when you look back at where you are today and looking back at where you started from, how did those dots connect? Because I know people, they're carrying on their careers and sometimes they get in situations they're like, I don't even know how I ended up here. So I would love for you to share how you, your reflective process of connecting the dots really brought you where you are today. Yeah, I mean, I remember when I was in high school and I was looking at going to university and it was like, well, I was either gonna, because because my what was presented to me was so limited, which is still true today. I was like, well, I'm interested in behavior, so maybe psychology, but I'm really interested in art and designing in the creative process, so maybe I'll go to an art school. And I picked uh, RISD, well, one, because I got in, but RISD was affiliated with Brown, so I could go to you know one of the best art schools in the world connected to an Ivy League institution where I could study psychology. And I thought that I would run in parallel. And then I discovered a field called industrial design, which is really product design, design strategy, and it's very like user-centric, behavior-driven creative process and it brought the two together. That's very powerful because I know even when I graduated from school, it's like doctor, lawyer, teacher, nurse, 
And it was in, and I, when I got to university, I learned about engineering and then all of these other fields. And as you know, years progress, all these different titles that never existed continue to evolve. And it's interesting because I, I do wish that people would have said, hey, there's going to be new titles created all the time. Yeah, you never know. To, and you're most likely going to create your job if you want the best one, create it. Yeah, I love that. So the brand new book, tell us a little bit about what ignited that empathy advantage. Sure. So uh, Chris Shipley, my co-author, and I had written the book, The Adaptation Advantage, which came out of um, research she'd done uh, in technology, because her background is a technology journalist, um, and then my experience um, on both the supply side education and the demand side of, of talent working for corporations. And I was seeing that the talent that we needed, the workforce that we needed was not being created by the educational systems. It was, we weren't attracting, nurturing, and retaining the right people on the workforce side. So I started explaining things and it just came out of that need to explain things to both audiences. Um, Adaptation Advantage came out in, in April, 2020, height of the pandemic. It was crazy. It became an accidental guide really to how to navigate the pandemic because it was called the adaptation advantage. Thank and then uh, as work changed through the pandemic and a bunch of things came to head, many of which were long in the making, I realized the zeitgeist had really shifted and no economic downturn is going to shift it back. So I took uh, the last year and a half or year, two years of talks and I said, there's a book here and there's a very short timeline to get it into people's hands. Right. So we wrote it in somewhere around 90 or 100 days. Wow. <laughs> Quickly, we just brought together the stuff that I was seeing and hearing. And um, that comes out March 8th, which I, I think is today, as we're recording this a little bit ahead of time. Um, and it's uh, it's really a guide, your guide to the zeitgeist. And it's you know profound that you found this window of time knowing that this is what people needed because the pandemic forever changed us all. And you know, with the pandemic, it in, in your book, you talk about how it the pandemic accelerated change. And there, there was a digital transformation due to human transformation. I would love for you to explain a little bit more about how technology has changed us and how we have changed with technology. Sure. So um, one of the things that I noted in the first couple of months that we went into the pandemic, I actually wrote an article in Forbes and in uh, early mid-March, really, two weeks or so after the CDC declared a global pandemic. And I said, I looked around and I said, I think this is the greatest catalyst to business transformation in history. Um, I didn't have the data then. I have since got the data that basically um, McKinsey found we let forward five years in our digital transformation in the first 60 days. And why was that? It was because we were starting to use the tools that were all around us. You know, we're recording this over Zoom. Zoom has been, came out in 2010 or 2011, right? So a decade ago. So when we talk about it being human transformation, we just start adapting our behaviors finally to the technology that's, that were there. And then, you know, one of the other examples I use is the speed in which we developed a vaccine which had to do with available technologies and behavior. So we had the ability of the genomic sequence, which we had not had in the past for a virus that gave us a, a huge advantage when we were looking at um, vaccine candidates. We also had computational immunology. We had the ability to use machine learning to simulate what the different vaccine candidates would do in the body. Um, and then we had global, global collaboration because the person who discovered 
the genomic sequence did not just share it with a couple of top research institutions or, or, or companies, he tweeted it out and said, anybody who can get started on this. So we had unprecedented global collaboration and then new wow. technology that allowed us to really accelerate um, something we had never been able to do before. And you know, when you talk about global collaboration and we see this as a mass pandemic, everybody working toward a common cause that when you think about the unsettling in the world, that how, how many times in the world has we have we ever seen that type of global collaboration of people actually working together in all parts of the world, regardless of our differences? Well, one of the places we did see it is after the uh, the murder of George Floyd, because the Black Lives Matter protests became the largest sustained protest in the history of the world. And so oh. People came together from other countries and cultures and, and, and communities, all saying that, you know, that this is something that has long needed to change. And now we're standing together to see some of those changes through. Yeah. And one of the things I know we've already talked about a little bit about the acceleration of change, but it brought dramatic changes to the workplace. What exactly yeah. has changed in the workplace itself? Yeah, so the, the highest level, like if I only had time in an elevator with you between, you know, for us to go, you know, 10 floors or something, this is how I would explain it. I think what's happened is there are two transformations that have taken place. One is a, is a fundamental change in the relationship between individuals and organizations. We once, we once exchanged um, loyalty for security with an organization. We'd spend our whole life with it. Then we um, looked to have a career with an organization and we would invest and they would invest in our career. And then it sort of became bundled from there. And now the, the workforce is empowered and they have to meet individuals where they are. That, that is the first shift. Um, I'm sorry, the first transformation. The second transformation is from linear to complex. After 15 years of digital disruption, we now operate as we, how we operate as organizations has changed. Many of the models we've used in the past, many of the metrics and measures we've used in the past are becoming increasingly um, ineffective and in some cases a liability. So the real heart of this book is to say that we, we need four transformations in leadership. First is a shift from a uh, mindset shift from managing people to enabling success. And the simple way I say this to folks is you're kind of used to the idea that your people work for you. The reality is you work for your people because your success is dependent upon their success. So that's a first mindset shift. The second is a shift in approach from peers as competitors to peers as collaborators. When you were that sort of unquestioned boss, you used to pit your people against each other to compete for your attention or for praise. Now, most people are managing teams full of people who have skills and knowledge they don't have. So you can't pitch your people against each other. You need your people to collaborate. So it's a movement from um, a reliance on individual intelligence to an, a need to harness collective intelligence. Uh, the third shift is a shift in approach from um, extrinsic motivation to intrinsic motivation. So we're not gonna get people to learn and adapt at the speed, scale, and scope that we need through punishments, threats, and rewards. That simply won't work at the scale and the speed so we need to help folks get in touch with their internal drive so they become self-propelled. And then the fourth shift is, is a movement away from being that unquestioned expert who makes decisions in certainty and motivates with domination, fear, even humiliation 
to um, you know a leader who can be an unquestioned who can be a humble curious learner and inspire uh, folks with effectiveness through inspiration caring love and belonging so you know when i think about culture i think also about the multi, we have such a multi-generational workforce people yeah. are staying in the workforce longer people are you know just this di- disruption has created a lot of learning that needed to go about and a lot of adaption. Um, The cookie cutter approaches to a multi-generational workforce no longer work as we have different values and different stages of life. I would love for you to, you know, talk about how, how the organizations need to be leading differently in supporting this multi-generational workforce. Sure. So the four shifts that I just talked about, mindset, behavior, approach, and culture, um, all really rely on empathy to be effective. Um, And this is also true when you're looking at it from how do I manage a multi-generational workforce? So you've got boomers, Gen X, millennial, and Gen Z is really what we're talking about. Boomers are starting to exit the workforce. Uh, They estimate about 75 million boomers will retire by 2030. That's going to leave a big gap, knowledge gap, as well as actual open positions in the workplace. Now you look at boomers, uh, boomers came out of, you know, civil rights, sexual revolution. They had a pretty decent investment in infrastructure and education. They, you know, put their heads down, they worked hard and their, their attitude and their approach is sort of like, you know, I worked hard, I sacrificed, why don't you? That's the most consistent sort of, you know, why do these kids today, why don't they work? Gen Z comes along next and I'm Gen Z and I got to say Gen Z, I'm sorry, Gen X, we need a marketing department because I'll go into a room and say, when I'm speaking and say, raise your hand if you're boomer, raise your hand if you're Gen X, raise your hand if millennial, raise your hand if you're Gen Z. And then I say, now, if you were born between 1965 and 1980 and you did not raise your hand, please raise your hand. And they raise their hand and I say, well, congratulations, welcome to to Gen X. You didn't know you were it, which is the most Gen X thing ever. It's not knowing (laughs) you So Gen X doesn't really have a strong identity, which is sort of a mistake because um, we were the first latchkey kids. Our parents started to get divorced. It wasn't the norm until millennials. Our parents started to lose their jobs. So we felt less of a commitment to work. We didn't feel that loyalty because we saw that loyalty agreement reneged for our parents. Um, We were the first generation to bring work home or start to because we started to get cell phones and and, uh, email when we began work. Uh, Also, Spotify, I don't think would exist because we made the mixtape. So I'd like to throw that out there from a cultural standpoint. That's true. Um, So Gen Xers get overlooked a lot, but um, I think they they really span um, digitization being part of uh, their work. They were kind of the first generation to be in the analog and the digital world. Uh, millennials come next. Millennials are the first generation for which divorce was a, a norm. Uh, there was more focus on the child as a way to kind of bind the family together. They also came um, into the workforce just on the heels of the global financial crisis. So many of them feel like they're not going to catch up. So they have even a little bit less loyalty than Gen X when it comes to work. <laughs> and then um, Gen Z, which is just entering the workforce now, but will be 30% of the workforce by 2030 entirely different set of experiences. And I often do a deep dive into Gen Z because I don't think they're fully understood. They have been in constant trauma. They were born in 9-11. They don't know a time before terrorism or the global financial, I mean, the global war on terror. Um, they uh, had mass school shootings as a norm. 
They had the global financial crisis when they were in grade school, so they started to feel economic fragility relatively early. Um, the UN climate report, a lot of them took that really to heart that we had 12 years to save the planet in 2018. So you've talked to a lot of Gen Zers who say, I'm not going to have children, the planet's not going to be there. Um, Black Lives Matter movement, Me Too movements, those movements were taking place when they were starting to have more social contests. They don't really know a time without war because we were in Afghanistan and now Ukraine is, um, you know, popping up. Um, they ended their um, education or entered the workforce in a global pandemic. So it's not surprising when you look at all these life stages and events um, that they're more fragile, that they're, they're, they have more issues around mental uh, health and wellness, uh, more anxiety and more depression. What I say to folks is if you have a Gen Z or in your basement, it's going to be okay. They, uh, they're going to move slowly, but they're going to cut a wide path. I think Gen Zers are going to change work in a way that's really important. They they want to work with a sense of purpose or not at all. And that might be better for all of us. So looking at those four generations of the workforce, you have to be empathetic for their experiences that mold their outlook when it comes to work. Yeah. I have three of those Gen Zers and I can, I can you just opened my eyes to a few things because I only looked at you know, the pan pandemic itself, yeah. not seeing all the other things that they necessarily experienced. Yeah. And, you know, the discussions that they've had in the classroom, the discussions that they have in university, and knowing that all of that is playing in their mind, thinking, will I be okay? And um, thank you for that. And it gives me a greater appreciation and empathy for them as well. Yeah. So, how are workers now empowered? I know you talk about how they're going to be more empowered. I know they want the work environments to be engaging. Um, they want to create more meaningful work, definitely. And to also step into their potential. Yeah. So they, they one way to think about how the workforce is empowered is we've got what I just went through, which was the generational change. So when Gen Z becomes a third of the workforce and millennials right now are the largest share of the workforce, they're insistent on having more meaning, more expression of their values, more living of their purpose, that they're less likely to check that, to just get a job. So we're going to see that that push continue. I mean, when you look back over the industrial revolutions, the first and second industrial revolution, we worked for survival. And then the third industrial revolution, we worked for status. And now I think we're working for purpose and impact. And I think that is not going to change even if there's you know some sort of economic downturn. We have, uh, at least here in the U.S., a pretty profound labor shortage, which has a combination to do with, you know, lower fertility rates, re aging society, aging society, which is related. Um, we have a lower participation rate for men in the workforce, which is something we need to work on. Um, and we have women not participating in the workforce at the rate they once were, at least prior to the pandemic, because we have no childcare infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So collectively, you have a supply-demand issue. You've got adnitudinal shifts from generational change. And then we've been through an existential crisis. We lost a million people in this country. And I don't think we've even processed that. And for what a lot of, has happened to a lot of folks is it's not so much about where we work. I had agency. I had personal life and my professional life integrated. I had agency and autonomy over both of them. I'm not willing to give that up just yet. So collectively, that gives you an empowered workforce where they're not just going to Take the demands. They're they're really willing willing to negotiate on what they want. 
And, you know, that was one of the things that was brought up in discussion on the pandemic when people started to work from home, those lines of personal and work blurred. And some people were very good at, you know, being in, in their home office for a certain period of time and going out into their house and leaving one behind the each other, whereas others like to integrate it and, you know, make it work. You also assert that our new workplace requires to have a more empathetic approach when it comes to leadership. And I know we've touched a little bit, but what are the costs of ignoring uh, this shift in expectation? Um, yeah, the war for talent is very much alive and it's really in uh, in the talent side is, is winning. So if your company depends on humans and I have yet to find a company that doesn't, um, you have to pay attention to what they want and how they work. I mean, one of the things that I've been bringing up in my talks over the last three years is everyone's focused on where work's going to take place and how we're going to negotiate hybrid. And I think that's an incredibly important question we need to figure out. Mm -hmm. But it really brought up five questions. Who works? The workplace was designed for a straight white man who had a wife at home managing all the caregiving responsibilities. We saw that when women left the workforce in mass, we saw that when diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging issues came up and have not gone away. Um, what we do for work, we're increasingly handing things over to technology. We're moving away from individual intelligence and towards collective intelligence and so much more collaboration and teaming. Uh, how we work, how we lead, how we measure work, all of that's changing, whether it's negotiating a four-day work week, um, negotiating where you work, negotiating how you lead, and we went, through, we went through the four shifts there. Where we work, again, I think that's where the experiment should begin now, and then why we work. We went from, you know, uh, survival identity to um, um, values and impact. So right. all of those things have, have shifted, and navigating that requires you have empathy or you won't be able to engage your workforce. And that's the single most valuable thing you have in your organization. And leaders are used to being positions of authority with all the answers. And how is this approach counterproductive in the new workplace? Because I'm starting to hear more about distributed leadership as well. Yeah. And when you think about it, you know, I go into most rooms I go into, I ask folks and when I'm speaking live, I say, how many of you have people reporting to you have skills and knowledge that you don't have? Now, if I was in a room full of CEOs, of course, all their hands should go up because that's always been the case as the CEO is managing a complex organization. Obviously, there are going to be skills and knowledge that they don't have. Now, um, I can see that at the definitely at the minimum management level. And I think sometimes even at the front line, you have people managing teams of people who have skills and knowledge they don't have, which means you can't run as an unquestioned expert anymore. That's a liability because you're you're not checking your blind spots, you're using your biases, you're making assumptions. Um, there's just, I mean, you look at it from cybersecurity, data analytics, you know, machine learning, whatever the, the emergent skill and knowledge is that's infiltrating almost every organization, you cannot be an expert on all those things. So it, it makes sense to move from, an unquestioned expert to more distributed leadership or distributed decision-making. Right. And, and I think what that will do also is create more cohesiveness in the workplace as well, to feel like you're part of making an impact versus having one person who has that, they, the know-it-all mentality. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the other thing that's happening is we've got a tremendous increase in churn in organizations. So that whole idea of the great resignation, which everybody kind of thought was between 2021 and 2022, 
turns out more people quit in 2022 than they did in 2021. So it's in, in, continued to increase. But not only that, it's been building since 2009. And Gardner predicts it's going to be up 20% going forward. So you got people leaving your organization all the time. Mm-hmm. And that has implications in terms of how you organize work, because you can't right. give all the information and knowledge or, or an entire project to one person who will walk out the door. You need to distribute that as well across teams, not only because you need the skills and knowledge that comes from more than one individual, but you also need the business continuity of sharing that responsibility across people. Right. Because you mentioned that even the knowledge gap with those people leaving go, goes all the knowledge that they had. Right. And um and having a, I don't know if there's a documentation system that people are starting to use. Cause I know way back when, you know, we used to have binders of, you know, past knowledge of different things. And now I see barely anything because they want to have the minimal, minimalist environment as well. Um, and you lose that knowledge as well. Yep. So how can leaders support the needs of the organization, which can be at times very taxing with physical and emotional demands and needs of their employees? Well, what we were doing over the last few years to few decades was just pushing more and more on the individual and saying, you know, we need a business leader who can drive productivity with, you know, domination here and sometimes even humiliation. And we thought that was a good idea. And we thought pitting people against each other so that, you know, you, you're the top 1%, so you get extra work to do and you're the bottom 2%, so you're going to get cut. We found that both of those ideas actually diminished performance. Um, so the idea that we, you know, that driving an organization means, you know, having these unquestioned experts who can just drive things is really not the case anymore. So if you look at our levels of engagement, which have moved very little in the 20 years gallops, I've been tracking them. And you look at our skyrocketing levels of burnout, mental illness, it makes sense for us to say, okay, where do we find the high-performing teams? How do we create those high-performing teams without burning people out? And that's where I think the humanization of the workforce, work-life integration, making paying attention to wellness is really going to give us superior performance if we stop myopically focused on driving productivity, which is really just burning folks out. Right. So it's really during the pandemic, the best thing to do was going back to the basics of getting, you know, good sleep, eating well, getting exercise and encouraging your employees to do the same. Yep. Take breaks. And, you know, there's a lot of evidence that, you know, once you get past 40 hours, especially again, 50 hours and and beyond, you start making more mistakes. You start producing, you know, lower quality results, which is kind of ironic because more than a hundred years ago, Henry Ford discovered that all the accidents happened on the 9th, 10th, and 11th hour on the production line. So he capped the workday at eight hours, five days a week was done by unions, but the eight hours was done by Henry Ford. And we still work eight hours, even though we're mostly, most of us are not on a production line and cognitive labor breaks down differently. So I think we need to set some new guardrails and benchmarks around that. And I think when people think that the errors are, you know, um, in when we see production, but errors occur in decision-making and other forms as well. Absolutely. Our, our production line are now decision factories and bad decisions can have greater implications than, you know, a single breakdown on the production line. Yeah. How, how can leaders make sure that they're effectively supporting their workers, especially with mental health, as you talked about, especially with Gen Z, but I know the pandemic itself has, affected people in a variety of ways with their mental health. Yeah. Well, it's, it's tough because we have HIPAA laws and you, you, you know, you can't, 
ask people about their mental health. But what you can do is ask open-ended questions, you know, beginning a meeting saying, how are you doing? What's on your mind? How can I help you? And then modeling your own behavior by saying, you know what, I'm turning my phone or computer off at five on Friday and I'm not turning it back on till eight o'clock on Monday morning. I'm taking vacation, no contacting people when they're on vacation, or I'm struggling with depression over the loss of somebody in my life or an event in my life, talking about it. So modeling the behavior by, you know, having good, you know, basically hygiene, emotional hygiene at work and sharing that. Um, and then modeling the vulnerability of sharing when you're struggling with something so that they know it's okay to either share to or to access the resources that your organization probably provides. Well, it's the power of short storytelling and that vulnerability is is a huge thing to know that the leader, because it's, you know, I think there was this premise that this leader is this untouchable <laughs> golden thing that they don't have feelings or they don't have, you know, these other emotions just like everyone else. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, they can be struggling as well, but people don't understand what's going on with their leader and vice versa. So what is the difference between having that resume mindset versus a eulogy mindset? And what virtues are most important in each one? Well, so we, we particularly here in the United States, we ask young you know children, what are they going to be when they grow up? We ask, you know, high school students what you're going to major in if you go to university or what you're going to concentrate on or go to trade school and then meet each other at a cocktail party. We say, what do you do? We drive towards this resume mindset and then, you know, you're dropped dead one day and someone puts together your eulogy and none of that resume stuff is on there. Um, and when we really think about, and I think the, exis the, the existential crisis of the pandemic really caused us to see this fragility of life, what's really important? What do you care about? And I think that is starting to integrate into work too. So if I care about the environment, I am not going to work for a place that trashes it. Or if I care about animals, I'm not going to work for a place that harms them. You know, you're seeing more and more that people are taking that the kind of eulogy stuff where you say, you know, why am I here? What, why do I exist? What kind of impact do I want to have in the world? And they're integrating that into how they work. And, you know, I think that's a that's a big shift because I know that people have had their identity tied to their resume often. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, try when you see someone at a cocktail party and say, instead of saying, hey, what do you do? You know, use the Terry Gross line. Tell me about yourself. That's how she opens an interview. Yeah. It's a great way to, you know, give someone the opportunity. Someone may talk about work because that may be a big passion for them, or they may talk about their children, or they may talk about mountain climbing, or they may talk about scrapbooking. You never know. Yeah. Yeah. I often, when, if I'm in an elevator or in a lineup, I'll say, so what do you do for fun? Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> I want to know what makes them tick and you can find out what drives them. Yeah. Or if you're really brave, say, tell me two truths and a lie. Oh, that would be a good one. I'm going to use that at the next one I go to. How does Gen Z demonstrate different needs compared to the previous generations? And I know we talked a little bit about that when I talked about the cookie cutter approach, yeah. but I'm sure that there's a little bit more to add. Yeah. One of the other things we haven't talked about yet, and it's um, millennials, you know, brought it into the front and Gen Z is not putting it away, is the is the rapid changes, the attitudinal changes around sexuality and gender and how they come into the workplace in terms of how we address each other, how we address our customers, how do we provide services for them. So um, the folks who are identifying as part of the LGBTQ plus community, of, of which I'm a member, 
um, is doubling every generation. So we're having more and more folks. And the fastest moving marker that I see in there is folks being identifying as either um, transgender or non-gender binary. Mm -hmm. And you're seeing that come up with uh, use of pronouns in how you address people, but also in the literature of your organization, the bathrooms, how you meet your customers. And that's a really fast and profound shift that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. And I get it. It's happened quickly. But if you look at millennial and Gen Z, which will be the largest share of the workforce soon, a millennial already is, but Gen Z alongside them, um, they think that binary gender markers are irrelevant in work. And so to suddenly shift all that is is huge. Yeah. And it's going to need to open up the conversation and for people to seek to understand, to learn how those values have shifted as well. Yep. So you assert that while many leaders are hyper-focused on closing the skills gap, this could be a waste of time. Can you explain why? Yeah, I, I don't think, let me explain. I don't think the skills gap will ever close. I think the idea of trying to close it by some educational institution or what have you is, is really a fo folly because a skills gap forms when a human demonstrates a skill and the market values the skill in excess of supply. That's actually progress. So mm -hmm. if we see learning as part of work and we see educational institutions preparing people for that reality, we'll be in the constant pursuit of, change, of closing the skills gap, but we never will because we'll be continuing to make progress. We'll continue emerging with new, new skills. So what I think the folly is to, to assume that you will hire people with the skills that all the skills and knowledge you'll need today and tomorrow, you might get most of today. You definitely won't get tomorrow. Right. And, and if people don't have the mindset of continuous learning, what I've come to learn to understand is, you know, some people graduate from university or high school and they think they're never going to pick up a book again in their life because they're like, I'm done. And I'm like, um, <laughs> no, you're not done. Especially when you talk about wanting to be in this position, you have to be able to expand your knowledge and meet the needs of the people you serve. Yeah, and it's and it's every organization. So we you know we tend to speak about it like knowledge workers and use you know analogies like books. But I mean, I've renovated a bunch of different houses over the last couple of decades, and the best people I've worked with, um, and they many, some of them went to universities, many of them didn't. Were the people who right. said, you know what, I'm actually going to look this up on a YouTube video because this is a change in how we used to do it. So they're constantly learning and adapting in the moment, pulling yeah, out their yeah. phone, figuring out how to apply. You know, I remember one guy was installing a, a solar led skylight shade for me at one of my houses. And and he was like, nobody could figure out how to do it. And he's like, well, why aren't they on YouTube? And he was on YouTube <laughs> trying to figure it out. He installed it in like 10 minutes. He had figured it out. And there's a constant wow. in the construction business. Yeah. I remember when my daughter was in grade nine, she was studying benchmarking. And I remember, like, for me, I had encyclopedias, right? And she's like, I can't figure this out. I said, first of all, did you check the textbook? Yes, I did. Did you work through some problems? Yes, I did. I still don't understand. I said, have you gone on YouTube? Well, why would I do a thing like that? She said to me, and I said, because you have resources and you need to learn how to be resourceful. And I walked away. Because I yeah. said, I'm not giving you the answer. I'm walking away. And then I came back, I think, 10, 15 minutes later. And she's like, Mom, I found this guy. He's even in Edmonton, this teacher. He taught me how to benchmark. And look, I can do it. And then he, she went to school and taught her friends. And then went and showed her her teacher who put it on their website. And I'm like, 
See, this is what happens when we tap into our resources. Yeah. Right. So it's a, it is definitely a big shift of picking up YouTube, everything from, I know, um, doing things in a car mechanic wise, um, people doing, fixing their dryers and uh, putting on skylights as well. So where should leaders be focusing their energy on instead when it comes to, you know, seeking good talent? Um, I think probably we're going to start seeing more of a shift away from, you know, the resumes and the robots that read them into networking. I mean, Zappos had this idea like 20 years ago, but a lot of the ideas that were coming out 10 or 20 years ago, I think are finally had their moment. Reed Hoffman's tours of duty, the idea of hiring people in for specific learning tours, I think has incredible relevance today. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Oh, I can't remember his name. The, the idea of job sculpting, The idea that, you know, we all have one or two of the eight deeply embedded life interests and jobs will be sculpted around that. And then the Zappos idea of no job descriptions, but networking to have people come into an organization because um, how people fit and stay in your organization has much more to do with how they fit into the culture, how they add to the culture. It's not a cult, it's culture. So they're adding to it. And then their relationship with their teammates and their um, direct supervisor. And so getting those pieces right, and then knowing that you're going to be on a journey of adding skills and deleting them when they become irrelevant is a process of what work is really going to be going forward. So we're looking at leverage and integration. Yeah. So what is a tip that leaders could implement tomorrow from your book to start leading with more empathy and using it to their advantage? You know, starting meetings by saying, you know, how are you doing? How can I help? And asking for feedback and giving feedback, because then you're establishing caring, you're establishing vulnerability, you're establishing openness, and you're learning about your people and you're having a much more human relationship based, um, you know, management style as opposed to a task based management style, because once you learn more about your people, Um, you know how to motivate them, you know how to connect to them, you know how to converse with them. So it's really a humanization of work. Right. And, you know, walking amongst the the people is one of my favorite ways to, you know, encourage leaders, because I think there's no greater conversation than finding out about the people around you. And I, and I had talked to a leader one time and she was actually resistant to walk amongst her people. It was actually a fear. And I think the fear was that she didn't have something in common with them or there was no relevancy, but when she actually did it, there was a shift in her mindset that they actually took interest in her as well. And uh, I I found it fascinating because for me, it was like, well, why wouldn't you do that? You know, why wouldn't you do that? And then I came to learn her reasons for why that wasn't something that she would do. And I just think it's the simplest, most cost-effective way to run a business or organization is to just walk amongst your people and inquire of who they are and what, because then you can be able to offer opportunities and extend, you know, that olive branch of growth. Yes. And um, one of the people I interviewed for the last book, The the Adaptation Advantage, was Carol Lehman and uh, Exonify up in Canada. She had off the charts glass door ratings. And I said to her, because I went and did, I think I did a couple talks for them, but I went up to do a talk for them prior to the pandemic. And I was like, well, Carol, people love you. Why do people love you? And she said, I don't know. I just, this is my fifth time being a CEO. And I finally wow. figured the best way to be a CEO is to be a human first. 
And so she does these sessions, ask me anything. And, you know, provided she's allowed to answer it because there's investor issues, she sometimes can't answer, but she can answer any question. And then people get to know her as a human. When she makes a mistake, she says she makes a mistake rectify it and i think that's she's she was way ahead of the curve on humanization of the workforce so thank you carol i continue to learn (laughs) that that's very very powerful and i and i and i totally agree that human first lead second and then you're working with an opportunity to leverage um Heather, this has been a phenomenal interview and really great insight into how we need to move forward, you know, post pandemic and dealing with the digital transformation and working through, you know, all these different shifts in our cultures um, and how we work in our workplace. I do have two additional questions that I always ask at the end of our interview. And uh, one is, what is one book other than one that you've written that has had an impact on your life? Yeah, so this this might be, a, it's not a business book. It's the book uh, about um, a protester who climbed a redwood tree in the 1990s called The Legacy of Luna. And the woman, who Julia Butterfly Hill, she climbed up a tree for what she thought was going to be a one-day tree sit. And then her understanding of the whole complexity of the process, not just what she was protesting, but the empathy she had for the guys who were trying to chop down the tree is a really profound and and complex story about the human condition and trying to understand essentially the person who was trying to almost kill her by knocking down the tree. And it was really, really powerful insight into um, why we need more empathy in our society. And I read that, you know, 20, 30 years ago, but still a good one. Wow. I, I hadn't heard of that title. So I'm going to have to check that out. It's um, very interesting. And my final question for you is, what does it mean to you to live rich from the inside out? Um, I think that one of the things that we've become more aware of in the pandemic is time. So we have something on the neighborhood of like 28,000 days uh, if we're of average life expectancy in the U.S. And we um, work about 90,000 hours, which is about 3,500 days. Um, the fragility of life is having agency over your time. Fragility of life made me aware of having agency over our time, I should say. And so being rich to me is having control of my time and having um, you know, a community of which I'm worthy and uh, which I can be an active member. And then having work as self-expression is just gravy on top of all that. Thank you so much. I, I love that expression, you know, to really pay attention to the fragility of life and time. Um, how can people stay in touch with you? Well, the, the book is called The Empathy Advantage. Let go learn. Um, empathy Advantage. <laughs> Let me start that again. Um, the book is called The Empathy Advantage, Leading the Empowered Workforce. That comes out March 8th. I'm very active on LinkedIn, which is where I share stuff I'm writing, reading, people tag me in things. So connect with me and tag with me, tag me in something if you think I should be reading it. Um, my website is heathermcgowan.com. So you, between those things, you can you can find and certainly get to me. Awesome. Any final words that you would love to live, leave with our uh, viewers or listeners? Yeah, I have one in my talks this way. I think there are three things we need to focus on. 
I already mentioned time. It's your only non-renewable resource. So if you've been listening to this podcast, which runs, you know, a half hour or something, that's 30 minutes of your life you decided to spend in a way. You can't ever get those 30 minutes back. So think every moment about mindfully managing your time. It's finite. We act like our money is finite and our time is infinite. It's the other way around. Trust underpins every single thing that we do. So you have a decision when you're when you're interacting with any other human to build or burn trust. Burning trust is never worth it. Focus on building trust. That's why people follow you, vote for you, buy from you, hang out with you, they're friends with you. And then capacity. That's the best investment we can make is in our is 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 in building and preserving our capacity. So it's your intellectual capacity, your curiosity capacity, your spiritual capacity, but it's also preserving your capacity by avoiding permit. So focus on that time, trust, capacity. And there you have it. And Empathy Advantage out March 8th. Excited to share this interview, Heather. And I want to thank you again for coming on the Millionaire Woman Show and really discussing these important topics. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you, everyone. And you can also pop over to my website at www.debrakazowski.com where you can get your 10 page PDF of reset your mindset. Whenever you feel like you're going off track to get yourself right back on and really focus on meaningful connection and what you want to do by opening your mind to possibility. And I will have in the show notes, our interview, all the links to Heather as well. So please stay tuned. As Muhammad Gandhi said, be the change you wish to see in the world. And on behalf of Heather and myself, go out and make today great.